Well, today uh, we're going to squeeze in a little bit of Acts, okay, and, and, and everything. And, and it is really, uh, I think, kind of appropriate, uh, given what's going on in the passage here, and uh, given um, what we're, uh, you know, um, uh, talking about in the Torah and Haftorah and New Covenant portion for uh, today, it all kind of goes together. And hopefully, kind of, uh, hopefully encourages us and energizes us a little bit. So, where we left off is in Corinth, okay, in uh, Acts chapter 18. And uh, we learned the last time we were in Acts, we learned about the formation of that congregation, about how it was in the Jewish quarter, and, you know, and how uh, there was a, quite a response uh, of people to the good news. And, so much so that uh, their uh, opposition grew, uh, and uh, the uh, the president of the synagogue uh, became a believer, and and uh, he um, uh, evidently lived next door and uh, to the uh, to the uh, synagogue there in Corinth, and and thus the beginning of uh, of the congregation. And we mentioned uh, then that when you read First Corinthians carefully. Uh, it is uh, not a coincidence that uh, the way we read about the uh, the beginning of the congregation at Corinth in, in a Jewish person's home, uh, and the fact that in in First Corinthians we read about Passover, first fruits, you know, and uh, uh, and other uh, related uh, uh, kinds of um, a Jewish. Uh, holidays and uh, experiences that it, it kind of makes sense that you would read those things in a letter uh, to Corinth. Now, oftentimes when you think about Corinth or you think about 1 Corinthians, you're not thinking of most people, except us, right, uh, are not thinking about anything Jewish, uh, right? But uh, it clearly uh, uh, very, very much is. And in a lot of the letters, uh, that Paul wrote, uh, he is, in a way, introducing these former pagans and now Messiah followers uh, into the understanding that they're part of the promise that God has made to Israel, uh, to the Jewish people that continues uh, to this day. And Luke, in many different ways, in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, brings this out certainly the way he describes uh, the formation of this congregation. Well, anyway, so we see that, uh, as was the case, Paul and his cohorts got themselves in some hot water, uh, and uh, they're brought before the authorities, and the authorities don't know what to do with them, and they basically don't do anything with them. Uh, and, uh, but, but they do face uh, plenty of opposition. Uh, and uh, where we left off is in verse 18 of uh, Acts 18. And so we see that they've had this opposition. Uh, and then we read, you know, in verse 17 about this person, Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, uh, and he is being beaten, uh, you know. And then it says right now where we want to begin in verse 18, and Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. 
And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. Remember them, Priscilla and Aquila? We met them uh, at uh, the beginning of uh, uh, chapter 18, right? Where uh, we read uh, about Paul coming to Corinth, and it says in verse 2, he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, right? And they are they become very important co-laborers uh, with Paul. And one of the things that we will see today is that Paul was no lone ranger. He had a lot of people, uh, a lot of co-laborers doing this work. He did not do all of this work. Uh, usually we just think about, okay, there was Yeshua. Okay, then we read some, you know, after the resurrection and after, you know, in the book of Acts, we read about Yeshua, Peter, and then Paul. But there's a lot of people that uh, Paul had uh, brought under his wing and who had come to know the Lord in other places and just sort of amalgamated themselves with him to do this, uh, to do this work. Okay, so it says here that, okay, he stayed a while longer there in Corinth, but now he decides it's time to come back. He, he does this several times. He comes back. Uh, he goes on three different journeys of planting congregations and visiting ones that he's already uh, planted and so on and encouraging them. So now for the second time, he's going to return. And, uh, and so when we read it carefully, though, notice what it says. So we took leave of the brethren, put out to sea for Syria, and with them were Priscilla and Aquila, and in, in Centria, which is not too far from Corinth, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. Now, nobody knows exactly what this vow was. Uh, maybe it was a Nazarite vow, but the only problem with that is usually if you're going to make one of those, you're doing that in Jerusalem, not outside of the land, because the land was, the, outside the land was considered unclean. Uh, and, you know, when you're taking a Nazarite vow, you're, the whole thing is about not being unclean, right? But... Uh, there are certain passages in some of the rabbinic literature that give the impression that you could begin the vow outside of the land as long as you completed the vow in, in Jerusalem at the temple. Okay? So it could have been. Or it could have been just another kind of vow uh, uh, that had to do with maybe um, uh, uh, leaving Corinth safely and you know, giving thanks to God. Uh, or, uh, as we'll see, he was returning not, not just to Syria, but to Jerusalem here, uh, and uh, that uh, perhaps he had the offering from Macedonia with him that he was going to be bringing, and he was just preparing for this journey to come back to Jerusalem. We don't know what the vow was, but one thing that Luke tells us by, you know, when you read these narrative passages, you always have to ask yourself, why does he include this? Because he doesn't have to. He didn't, that verse, if that verse was not in the text, we would not miss a thing uh, about anything else going on. It's like this self-contained little extra information. And so one of the things that Luke continues to bring out, and that he has brought out and he continues to bring out, is that Paul, while, while bringing this message to, primarily to the Gentiles, but to Jews and Gentiles, I did not in any way, shape, or form 
see himself as no longer in the Jewish world, and not just in, not just in the Jewish world, but under the halachic, uh, un, under the rules and regulations of the temple, you know, and, and what the expectations were in the Jewish world. He did not see himself as, now I don't have anything to do with whatever, you know, I, what, whatever the, the, the traditions are. I'm Jewish, I, but I don't have anything to do with any of the uh, customs or traditions or um, uh, relationships in Jerusalem. Yes, he did. He did not see himself as now uh, having abrogated uh, anything or jettisoning anything. Okay. In fact, later on, uh, when he is brought before the Sanhedrin, what is he going to say? He's going to say, uh, I have kept the customs and traditions of my people. He's going to testify uh, uh, to, uh, to that. So we see that he does what a Jewish person does in a way that a Jewish person does it, keeping the vow or, you know, cutting his hair and entering this vow. Now, again, nobody knows exactly what it was. You know, there are some who would say he already had a vow, and that this was completing the vow, not beginning a vow, but completing it. We don't know. But what we do know uh, is that he does it, <laughs> okay, that he does it. Then it says, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. That's Aquila and Priscilla, okay? Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned, with the Jews. So he didn't, then it says in, then in the next verse, and when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, by the way, another very, that's a Jewish colloquial phrase, if God wills, he set a sail from Ephesus. Sometimes we get confused unless we read it carefully because after he returns and then he goes out for his third journey, He's going to go again. He's going to go to Ephesus again and stay there for a few years. Okay. And some famous things happen there. Uh, and, but not now, not at this point. He's left Corinth. He is with Aquila and Priscilla. He cuts his hair for the vow. Uh, and even though, you know, he's sort of like changing planes in Ephesus, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, he's on his way back to, as it says, Syria. But we'll see there's something else going on there. But he's probably he's in Ephesus for who knows just you know a weekend in Ephesus or something I don't know, uh, but he goes to the synagogue, right? He goes to the synagogue uh, and he reasons with uh, the the Jewish people there, uh, and so again Luke is uh, we should never underestimate it's just it's just not a, just a, a quirky thing. Isn't it interesting that Paul went to the synagogue? Luke is like bringing this out over and over and over again, uh, you know, let us be aware um, of what's going on with Paul. Because, again, if we only know Paul from reading the letters that he wrote to the congregations, we might get a very different picture of him. So it's important to read the narrative of this part of his life along with those letters. Okay? Very, very important. Okay, so now it says... Uh, here in verse 22, very important. When he had landed at Caesarea, that's also important. He comes to Caesarea. He doesn't go to Tyre. Or if he was just going to Syria, if he was only going to Antioch, that's probably where he would have gone. 
you know where that is. That's along, it's along the coast. So if you're familiar with Israel a little bit, you know where Tel Aviv is, right? So Caesarea, uh, today, if you're talking to an Israeli, is a Caesarea, right? So it's just north of, uh, it's north of Tel Aviv. Tyre is basically in Lebanon. You know, that's, you just keep going north along the Mediterranean coast. All right? I, I, but there was no Lebanon exactly in the same exact location at that time. It would be basically going to Syria. But he comes to Caesarea. And then notice what it says. He went up. That's really important. Okay? He went up and greeted the, the Kehillah, the congregation, and then he went down to Antioch. He went up and he went down. So in the Bible, when you're in a place like Caesarea and you go up, where are you going? You're going to Jerusalem, all right? And it's very interesting. It's not, it's not just about geography, okay? When you read about going to Jerusalem, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. It doesn't mean like just go up, go up a mountain. It means go to Jerusalem from, you know, wherever, right? So when we read about going to Jerusalem, people are always going up to Jerusalem. And if they're going from Jerusalem to another location, it's they're going down. You go up to Jerusalem and you go down to someplace else. All right? So even though it doesn't say that he went to Jerusalem, may I suggest that Luke is using a euphemism to describe Jerusalem. And so Paul comes to Jerusalem. Now, there's something about that that is really fascinating. Have you notice when you sort of take the, the drone view? <laughs> you know, in years past, I might have said the helicopter view. But the drone view, uh, the big picture of what's going on, do, do you notice that even though, remember at the beginning of Acts, we said that the way Acts is written, it begins in Jerusalem, and then it moves out. The good news begins in Jerusalem and moves out. Uh, uh, to uh, Samaria, and then out of Judea altogether to the re you know uh, to the remotest part of the earth in Asia, Europe, and so on, right? But something that uh, again, may I suggest, uh, Luke is bringing out is that everybody goes back to Jerusalem. Peter, he remember he left, and that you know. Uh, he, he went uh, to see what was going on with Cornelius, right? Goes back to Jerusalem. Paul, interestingly enough, continues to return to Jerusalem. The point of it is, is that Jerusalem remains central to the story of the good news in not only its theology, but in the history, in the early history. Jerusalem remains like the the hub of the wheel, even though that even though uh, Paul uh, originally and Barnabas were sent out from Antioch, and then Paul and Silas go, you know, from Antioch, Jerusalem uh, still remains, uh, you know, a, a primary a primary focus. And of course, when we get to chapter twenty one. We'll talk more uh, about that with uh, James and the, and the congregation uh, at uh, Jerusalem. So anyway, so uh, he comes back to Jerusalem, greets the brethren there, and then he goes down to Antioch. 
And evidently, he doesn't stay very long because the next thing we know, he's out again. And this time is, this is his last journey out. Uh, and because uh, as you know, what's going to happen is he's going to visit congregations where he's been. And now he's going, then he's going to return to Jerusalem a third time against everybody's advice. Okay. And that's where he's going to get arrested. And then he's, that's where he's going to be ultimately brought to Rome. Okay. All right. So now we see, and having spent some time there, he departed and passed successfully through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Okay. So clearly what he's doing here, he's doing some of uh, what we would uh, call discipleship work, right? Uh, he's visiting the believers and strengthening uh, the congregations. Now, there are people there. There are people like Aquila and Priscilla, other people that he, you ever notice at the end of the letters, he thanks people. He's always thanking people because they're there. They're the people in the trenches, uh, taking care of the people, doing the teaching and, and so on, right? And he's strengthening the disciples. Now we're going to read about another person. Another key person enters the story. Not only Aquila and Priscilla, but now someone named uh, Apollos. Whose, his whole name is Apollonius, which means a, a learned one. And that's how he's going to be described. That's how he's going to be described here. Now, a certain Jew, now, i got to stop there, okay? Do you notice that here in verse 24, it says a certain Jew named Apollos, and then also in chapter 18 in verse 2, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, that the name Jew is not only used in a polemical way, speaking of unbelievers or people that are against the gospel, okay? But uh, Aquila and Priscilla uh, and uh, Apollos are called Jews, <laughs> okay? Uh, and I think, again, we should never uh, bypass anything here. Uh, and Luke is again reminding us, uh, as we will, as we have seen out of the mouth of Peter previously, and out of the mouth of Paul previously, and we will in the future out of the mouth of Paul, that the primary identity, ethnic identity, of these people is Jewish. They never considered themselves leaving anything. Uh, what it was more of an is an expansion not leaving something, okay? Uh, and uh, we need to, uh, you know, really always, uh, always remember that. You know, I read an interesting book uh, a few weeks ago by an author that some of us know, and hopefully we'll be having him back. We've known him for many years. He, his name is uh, Mark uh, Kinzer, and um, he is a Messianic Jewish uh, scholar, uh, he started a congregation in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but his primary work has to do, you know, with uh, teaching uh, all the things that we like to, you know, uh, uh, study about the good news and the, in the area of biblical studies. And uh, so he wrote a book called um, uh, Jerusalem Crucified, Jerusalem Risen, uh, where he goes into detail on... Uh, the direct relationship of the death and resurrection of Yeshua to the physical future of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Uh, and I'm happy to say that a, a popular version 
of this book has now been written. It's called Besora, uh, which means, you know, good news, right? And I, and uh, that'll, so hopefully, you know, we'll all be able to enjoy uh, understanding, uh, understanding that. Uh, and, um, and so very, very important for us to, to really uh, get that, you, you know, because the reason I mentioned this book is because, as we know, so many scholars write so many good and wonderful things, but miss this whole thing uh, of the, this primary relationship of the ministry of the Messiah and Jerusalem and Israel and the, 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 the hope of Israel. Uh, and uh, very important uh, that we understand what's going on here in uh, Acts. Okay, now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man. Uh, that's a great uh, introduction, uh, right? Uh, Alexandria, you know, is a big city in Egypt, right? And known for a great library, right? A great, uh, a, a signi- I mean, a world library. Uh, uh, it's where the Septuagint w- was, uh, was written. Known for a large influential Jewish population and an educated influential Jewish population. So it's significant that he's from Alexandria. Okay? Uh, and uh, an eloquent, meaning uh, a good communicator, a gifted orator. All right? He came to Ephesus and mighty in the scriptures, uh, obviously very knowledgeable of the Tanakh. There were no other, no other scriptures at the time, right? All right. Uh, and then we read in verse 25, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Yeshua, being acquainted only with the immersion of John. Interesting. So uh, here, uh, he is uh, very knowledgeable in the, in the scriptures, speaking accurately the things concerning, you know, Yesh- Yeshua, but acquainted only with the immersion of a, a John. We'll understand this in a minute. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. More accurately meaning the immersion of Yeshua uh, means not only being water immersed in Yeshua, but the pouring out of the Ruach, the pouring out of of the Holy Spirit. Okay, Now the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, remember, is very key throughout the book of Acts because it is called the promise of the fathers, right? When you go back to Acts chapter 2 in verse 33, when Peter is talking about the good news, the pouring out of the Ruach is not like this separate thing that, that is now taking place. It is part and parcel of the promise that God has made to Israel. Okay? Uh, and, uh, uh, and that is what they had seen and heard in Acts chapter 2. And uh, and and so on, which leads to Peter's uh, speech, and then we uh, see in uh, Acts chapter ten when uh, Peter uh, has to have a vision. He needs an angel. He needs someone else telling him that he can go to the home of Cornelius 
uh, this uh, a Gentile man, uh, and he can uh, uh, not only eat with him, but he can share with him the good news, right? That he believes and then receives the Ruach with Peter uh, laying his hands on him because they needed to know that this is the same thing that's happening in Jerusalem. That, you know, and this is what's happening uh, even among the Gentiles, right? Uh, that was very significant of the, the message moving forward uh, outside of both Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and outside of Jews, whether they're Jerusalem Jews or Hellenistic Jews, but now to, uh, uh, to, to Gentiles, okay? Well, now you have this situation here uh, with uh, this Jewish man, uh, Apollos, who knows the gospel, but is not aware, evidently, of what has taken place historically in Jerusalem, you know, uh, on Pentecost, on that, on that Pentecost day. And so they instruct him about it. What's interesting here, because we need to also read the next few verses at the beginning of chapter 19, kind of at the same time. What's interesting here is that they simply, all it says is that they instruct him, okay? And when it says, uh, yeah, but when Priscilla and Quilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him when he had arrived. And he helped greatly those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Yeshua was the Messiah. So what's interesting about Apollos is, all it says is that they instructed him. And then he had the instruction, uh, and, uh, and he continued, and, and he was a man of, uh, that uh, had a great reputation. Okay, uh, So you just have to keep that in mind. Because when you read now the beginning of chapter 19, something else is, we're going to read something else. And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper uh, country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. Okay, so now it's like, meanwhile, you have this little anecdotal story about Apollos at Corinth. Okay, and now Paul now, remember now he's left, he had visited Jerusalem and went to I went to Antioch, and then he left, and he's on his third journey, and he's gone through these different regions, encouraging the brethren. Okay, so now he comes to Ephesus, and he's going to stay here for two years. We just want to understand something at the beginning of this. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, hey, what are we, what's going on? No, he doesn't say that. Uh, he said, and into what then were you immersed? And he said, into John's baptism, into John's immersion. And, uh, and Paul said, John baptized you with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Yeshua. And when they heard this, they were immersed in the name of the Lord Yeshua. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And quite interesting, there was about 12 of them. Okay? All right. So it's kind of interesting. We see something developing here. 
something's going on here. Evidently, you know, they really had their work cut out for them. There was no already some kind of um, little uh, booklet explaining, uh, okay, this is what it means to be a believer. And this is how you, uh, this is how you come to know the Lord. And, and this is what you must know. They were kind of, uh, it was a little sketchy here. So here you have Apollos, who's described, you know, some people would say they weren't sure if Apollos was a believer or not a believer. The way he is described, it, it, it seems clear to me, Apollos was, was a believer. And, uh, and that he was, uh, and I, I will go out on a limb and say, because it doesn't say that then they prayed over him and then he received the Holy Spirit, but that he was speaking fervently, uh, you know, uh, in spirit and the power of God, that he evidently had embraced Yeshua, but he didn't have all the info, yet God was at work. And may I suggest that the reason that it doesn't say that, the, that uh, he received the Holy Spirit is because he, he did, but he was not quite aware of what was going on. We might say, how can that be? Well, let me tell you a little story about uh, this guy in 1976 that was laying in bed. Uh, and had heard the gospel, you know, uh, the Jewish Messiah of Israel. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. And, you know, um, I read the scriptures and all that. And, and um, this guy uh, became certainly convicted of sin and recognized that Yeshua was the Messiah. And, uh, you know, and, and as we say, said a prayer and asked Yeshua to come into his life. And, uh, and then realized, wow, I have moved from point A to point B. Well, you know, but if someone had asked this person, who of course is me, right? Okay, now explain it. Explain it. I'll say, I, I can't articulate it. I can't really explain it, you know? And I will say, if you were able to really explain it and understand it and the mechanics of salvation and uh, the, uh, you, know, you know, what it means to know the Lord and all that when you uh, came to faith, well, you're really ahead of the game, Right? I remember a certain young man uh, uh, who uh, came to know the Lord uh, here at Beth Messiah. Uh, and uh, after he became a believer, uh, he and I started meeting regularly for years, started meeting regularly. And, uh, and when I said, well, we need to start meeting regularly. So we, we, we met once and he asked me this question. Well, if I like believe in Yeshua now, why do we need to, why do I need to do this? Like, why do we need to, to meet? You know, and I said, oh, because it's one thing to embrace Yeshua. It's another thing to understand, to, to know and to understand and to move forward in the walk with God. And that is what's called uh, discipleship, you know, mentoring, as we might say now. Right, right, right. And uh, and, and that is uh, and that is the case. And so in Apollos, in Apollos's situation, it seems that what he needed was some discipleship, all right? However, in uh, chapter 19, it's a little bit of a different story. Okay, so here uh, he is uh, in, uh, Paul now is in uh, Ephesus, and he found some disciples, all right? Now, these disciples, it seems, were people that knew about Yeshua, knew about Yeshua, right? They knew John's message, certainly. So they knew John's message. They knew about Yeshua. But, 
but they certainly did not understand the thing of embracing Yeshua, clearly. Uh, okay? Uh, and so here it says, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, we haven't even heard whether there is a, a Holy Spirit. Okay. And so then he says, what, in what, what were you immersed? Now, what does it mean when he says, what were you immersed into? Right? Uh, it, it speaks of, it's sort of a double entendre in, in a way. Certainly they were immersed by John, you, you know, uh, and, uh, uh, for the, and, and they repented, but immersed into what John was all about. Immersed and identified, what a better word might be, they identified with the message of John, okay? And so they were sort of in the realm among, you know, among those who, who embraced Yeshua, but, but may I suggest they, they were people most likely, I mean, nobody knows exactly, but they were most likely people that had not yet fully embraced uh, uh, Yeshua. So now, uh, when it says uh, here in verse 5, oh, he says, and Paul said, and this is what uh, we read in uh, our uh, New Covenant portion for today in the beginning of uh, Mark, and what was uh, prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40, right? Uh, uh, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who is coming after him. That is in Yeshua. That is a very telling statement about these, about what he's communicating to these people. And then he says, and when they heard this about embracing Yeshua, they were immersed in the name of the Lord Yeshua. Okay? They were immersed in the water. They were immersed in the name of the Lord uh, Yeshua. They identified now with Yeshua himself. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And so what we see is here were people that were quote-unquote followers, but they had not clearly understood the, the message of salvation. They had not embraced Yeshua. And here Luke, he, he seems to be differentiating Apollos' experience from these 12 people's experience. And uh, in this case, what we see is uh, these people in Ephesus, and may I suggest probably people who were not Jewish, because that was uh, the primary ministry in Ephesus, okay? Uh, that he lays hands on them, much like Peter and Cornelius, very, very much like Peter and Cornelius, okay? But now Paul lays hands on them, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, right? And they began speaking in tongues. They have the same experience as Cornelius has, which they had in Acts chapter 2. It's repeated again, making this very important point, that part of the good news is the promise of the fathers. And that the promise of the fathers, not, it's not the, father, not the church fathers, Right? The promise of the fathers is uh, the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, the prophets, and, and all of that is the pouring out of the Ruach, because the pouring out of the Ruach is the beginning of the world to come. It's the beginning of the new age. 
And that comes as a result of the death and resurrection of Yeshua, the Messiah. And so it's one thing to know that, okay, he died and he rose from the dead. It's another thing than to embrace this truth. And when we embrace this truth, the normative experience is that we receive the Ruach. We receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? We read, for example, when Paul writes to the believers uh, in Ephesus, when he writes later on to the believers in Ephesus, he says in the first chapter, in verse 13, it says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory, and so on. And so, you know, he's basically uh, uh, saying that you had the, the experience that we've had, and we share this experience. And then when he writes to the believers in Corinth, it's interesting, Ephesus and Corinth, uh, that uh, in chapter 12, in verse 13, he says, By one spirit we were all immersed into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit, for the body is not one member but many. Right? And so he identifies Messiah followers as those who have been immersed by the Holy Spirit into the body of Messiah. And that the, the great, the mechanics of our salvation is such, when I say the mechanic, what actually happens? Well, you know, we embrace Yeshua. What God does, and every single time it's a miraculous thing. He breaks into us, indwells us. And the sign of that, that is the Ruach living in us and empowered to live a godly life. And so in the book of Acts, you do not see any norm. You see, sometimes it's when people believe, sometimes it was right after they believe, sometimes it was after they were immersed. Other, but one thing's for sure, that the Holy Spirit of promise, the promise of the fathers, breaks into the lives of those who know the Lord. In Ro I'm not gonna go on, but in Romans chapter eight, you know, I, when you re read the whole chapter, you, those, who, uh, you know, those who are led by the Ruach are the children of God, okay? And, uh, and so it is, um, it is quite clear that the receiving of the Ruach uh, is the, uh, the new covenant experience. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and so, you know, like for many of us, when we come to know the Lord, we don't know that's all happening, but that's what's happening, you, you know? And, uh, and, and what is a sign of it? A, a sign of it uh, here was speaking different languages, clearly in Acts 2 and Acts 10 and Acts 19. But also is, uh, you, you know, for, uh, for example, taking a great interest in the Bible all of a sudden, uh, uh, desiring to pray, Desiring to, to draw closer to God, desiring to, to, uh, you know, to live godly and, and through prayer and the encouragement of others, seeing transformation in our lives. That's, 
you know, and the fruit of the Spirit in uh, uh, Galatians. Clearly, there uh, is a clearly, you know, that we see. And, and variety can be varieties of manifestations of the presence of God in, in a person's life in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of, uh, in all kinds of uh, ways. So in this passage, uh, what, what we see here uh, clearly is, uh, one, we see in the life of Paul, in the message, uh, in his way of life, uh, and uh, in uh, the people that he engages with, uh, that there is a collaboration. Uh, there is a, uh, uh, these are people that, th there was quite a network of people that worked very hard to plant these congregations, grow these congregations, and so on. Uh, and so there's a model there. There's a paradigm there of not being a lone ranger, you know? Uh, and isn't it a wonderful thing that, here at Beth Messiah, I think we demonstrate that to uh, a certain degree. But uh, as it says in First uh, Thessalonians, we should excel still more, right? In in that of training people and in, in varieties of work and 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 ministry. It's never uh, it's never a show. Everybody's participating. Paul certainly didn't do it on his own. Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos is going to play a, a strategic role in, uh, in a Corinth. Uh, and then um, recognizing that uh, the message of the good news, the good news is, yes, Yeshua came and he died for our sins and rose from the dead and has forgiven our sins and given us life in him, but that life comes via the indwelling of the Ruach. And, uh, and you know, that is, uh, th that is a marvelous, uh, uh, thing. And for, I think for all of us, when we think about this season of moving, uh, you know, toward the high holy days, uh, I think a good thing for us to ask ourselves is, uh, you know, am I demonstrating like the fruit of the spirit in my life? Am I, uh, demonstrating the presence of God in my life? Or is he there? But clearly I'm just doing my own, just simply doing my own thing. And, you know, it is very interesting because in this week's uh, Torah portion, which we'll talk about in the Torah study, uh, this is, you know, uh, the, you have the Ten Commandments, you have uh, the Shema, and all of that. But what Moses emphasized, which usually does not get emphasized, is how it happened, is how God broke in to this world at Mount Sinai. And how many times does it say... We heard his voice in the midst of the fire. We heard his voice in the midst of the fire. He says it over and over again. We heard his voice in the midst. God spoke to us from the fire. You know, it's not just God gave you the Ten Commandments, do it. Okay. It's God spoke to you to the midst of the fire. Okay. Re remember that experience. And so may I suggest that when Yeshua came, and that when and and completed his work, uh, and uh, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and poured out the uh, the ruach, he once again has spoken to us in the midst of the fire. But now we're not looking at the fire and simply hearing his voice. But he has come, and the fire indwells us. The fire of God indwells us. 
which means that he is there all the time. It's not a case of he's there, we're here, I hear his voice, okay. But now uh, he has enveloped us within himself. And that is why Paul says that we have been immersed by the Ruach into one body. Because the fire of God, it's not a forest fire where we're individual trees or something. You know, we're in him. All of us are in him. And he, that fire, connects all of us together uh, in an organic unity in the coming of the Messiah. Uh, and, uh, And so, you know, uh, that is something very important that we learn here from Acts. And just uh, to the last word on it is, and it is the promise of the fathers. It's part of the messianic promise to Israel of the pouring out of this ruach, of not only the fire coming at Mount Sinai, but the fire coming and enveloping all who embrace the Messiah of Israel. So may we be encouraged, uh, and may we move forward in power Uh, as we journey toward the high holy days. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, uh, thank you uh, for uh, this word and all that it means to us, God. And uh, may may indeed, uh, as we see uh, the testimony, may we all be co-laborers together. And may we, uh, uh, in, in our embracing of Yeshua, may we understand the power of the Ruach HaKodesh who dwells in us. We pray in Messiah's name.